This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, once again, you are back ostensibly live with the DLR Cast, the podcast, the only podcast by and for fans of the mighty Diamond One, Diamond David Lee Roth. As always, I'm Steve, along here with my good friend, the debonair, the dynamite kid himself, <laughs> host of the Paltrow Cast and co-host of the DLR Cast right here. No more introductions necessary. Darren Paltowitz. Darren, great to see you. Great to hear you again, my friend. Likewise. I, I promise 80% less coughing on this episode. Now the coughing is down to like uh, like three spats a day. But All right. Well, well as long as as long as uh, the coughing is more do- due to uh, rough mornings, cigarette haze, <laughs> and drinking, and not any anything related to a global pandemic, we'll take it. So thank you. Well. I thought that I was going to have the best exclusive of all time on on this podcast, and it was a bust. Having said that, though, hold on. We do have got a great Roth exclusive <laughs> as far as this interview, but let's start with your bu- the bust scoop exclusive that you had, and we'll get into our interview in a bit. But let's preface that by saying you did deliver with a great inter- with a great um a, a great scoop and a, and a terrific exclusive here. So, but let's but let's hit well, let's hit what didn't happen first. <laughs> okay, so there were some comments being responded to on the Facebook posts of David Lee Roth, and it was responding to some of the people, and it was all lowercase. You were like, okay, okay, I get it. Is he managing his social media? So he was responding this account to some people, and it was. It was like, uh, hey, Dave, hope you're fine. Yeah, I'm fine, man. Like those kinds of responses. Like, oh, my God, he's he's alive. He's on social media. And this was tipped off to me by a prior guest of ours who got responded to. And then I went, something doesn't smell right here. And I looked. It was a fake account. It was a David Lee Roth official responding on these texts. Now, I was excited and giddy for hours because I thought, wait, he knows about our podcast. He re- Okay, wait a minute. Which which hold on, which Facebook page was this person posting at? The official David Lee Roth blue checkmark account. Okay, getting, where he posts the artwork. Yes, was getting responses on it from David Lee Roth official. So if you're, you know, a person with common sense, you'd go, oh wow, okay, response, matching profile photo. And then you click on it and you see 12 followers and you go, oh, now I thought just like everybody, this was Dave or somebody on Dave's team's responding until I saw one post. Somebody said something like, Dave, you got to make up these Vegas shows. And the spoof account writes back, "Okay, I will. And you go, "Okay, something's up here. He wouldn't just do that. So I did what I thought was the right thing, and I reported it as a spoof account to be deleted because that is evil. Like that person was saying to some of the people, hey, DM me, like, hey, direct message me. Somebody thought the brilliant idea of creating a mirror David Lee Roth Facebook account and commenting on the David Lee Roth posts and duping people. Yeah, I mean, just there are so many spoof accounts up coming, especially for any sorts of celebrities and musicians and the like. But it is pretty far fetched. I mean, all of a sudden, out of the blue, 
well, for Dave to just start responding if that was even the case, as opposed, to, I mean, you know, there's barely, there's not even any, there's not even any, um, any, any text with the post with the artwork, for goodness sakes, you know, it's just posted. Okay, so yes, that is common logic. But the person who had been on our show told me that Dave is actually a techie. He had, well, I believe that he had a souped up Mac before any of us did. That's what I was told. So therefore, it's not far fetched to say he is online. He is reading his stuff. But the person just went through the lengths to have a duplicate looking account. Right. That's what I'm saying. I have no doubt that he looks at this stuff, that he's not a complete Luddite, as we sometimes as the curveball he'll often throw. Um, the guy probably knows his way around a Mac real good. Probably does a lot of home recording. God knows. I bet you a lot of those remixes that usually, uh, um, 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 you know, that whole bit, um, yeah. you know, those originate. I bet you he's making those right at home in, you know, um, in garage band or whatever it might be. So he, I have no doubt he's really good at this, but I completely doubt on some random Tuesday, he's going to start posting, you know, or commenting on posts, but good on you for chasing it down. Yeah, that, that was a big bummer that, uh, that was a big bummer. I had a little bit of hope that he was alive and well on social media and just doing the kind of thing where when you least him expect him, there he is. But that, that excitement started around 2 PM and it was killed by like 8 PM the same Wait. day. You know, I'm kind of surprised, though, when you think about it a little bit more, okay? Because he did have a blog going for a while with some yeah. incredibly lengthy blog posts that I think are still up at davidleeroth.com. Yeah. And he's so prolific, right? I mean, and he's I, the guy is a brilliant and talented wordsmith. So yeah. I, I'm a little surprised that he hasn't used, forget Twitter, that he hasn't used, let's say, Facebook or at least the website more to tell his story in words or whatever's happening, what's going on. I just, and I just think he, as far as how much he wants to share and when is very, I wouldn't even say cyclical. It, it's, it's, um, it's on a whim. I think I want to do a podcast now. What are He's the, done two of them. Do you that, know what I mean? What are the odds that video comic book, the Roth project was actually his life story and was his blog. <laughs> Right. Everything that was going on in his life. I mean, who the hell knows? So, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that he doesn't offer two or three paragraphs with a whole bunch of mystery yeah. odds and ends in there about why Vegas got canceled. Um, yeah. But I would uh, but he'd be a perfect foil for it. He'd be the perfect kind of artist where you'd, you know, I wouldn't say expect because no one expects it now, but he would really be the perfect kind of artist where you go, yeah, that makes sense. Do you know <laughs> what I'm saying? In other words, look, that's a long way of saying that he's the perfect kind of guy, an artist, and I really wish he was more forthcoming and provided more content at social media, at least from his, I mean, as far as verbal and written content out there, you know? I mean, Paul, Paul Stanley the other day for his birthday posted this really interesting and kind of heartfelt and deep post about I guess basically about life, right? On Instagram and Facebook about get, you know, just where he's gone in his life. Cause I think he, did he turn 70 
couple days ago. And happy birthday a day or two ago, to, who turned sixty nine, uh, to Robin Zander as well. So it's rare we go at least where it's rare we go a couple uh, episodes here where I'm not uh, genuflecting about either Cheap Trick or Kiss. <laughs> Having said that, it's just right. Their birthdays are right alongside each other practically. But so I mean, but somebody like Paul Stanley, I mean, that's the sort of stuff. I think everybody loves when their artist when their favorite artists get a little bit more introspective and deep. And yeah. Dave, I don't wouldn't expect to get too introspective, but sometimes he gets a little bit deep. You just don't know how that pool how deep that pool's gonna go, or if you can find yourself swimming through the very, very increasingly murky waters to exhaust that metaphor just a little bit further. You you mean how deep a rabbit hole goes? Thank you very much. Yes. There you that's, go. That's the trouble with never. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately my scoop was a bust. And within a day of that, you know, Dave bust, well, Sammy announces a tour. So he's not just playing Vegas, but he's hitting the road with George Thorogood and the destroyers. And it's, it's kind of weird where you don't know if the, these are all the dates or he's just super spread out, but you know what? That's a pretty cool lineup. It is a cool lineup, and it's right on the heels of another what I thought is a really cool lineup announced too, and that is, um, uh, in fact, I could see a couple of these bands all tour with Stan uh, with Sammy as well, and they both came on top of each other. So I kind of got for a brief second they kind of uh, got mixed up in my 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 mind for a minute. But that's Kid Rock with whatever version of a foreigner tribute <laughs> band is out there now. I hate to say, and I think Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin Experience, which. And Sundays with Grand Funk Railroad. Right, with Grand Funk Railroad with yeah. former Kiss guitarist Bruce Kulick in it. And, of course, Bonham played with Sammy Hagar, so this is where my mind all went crazy. But as far as, like, good rock shows go, getting some bang for your buck, I could see Sammy on intermingling with any of those bills there. And yeah. I just think Bravo... Listen, bravo for him for getting out on the road and still doing it at age 103. No, at age 72 <laughs> or whatever he is. Because he... You know, we talk about Dave being a mystery guy. Dave never stops producing. We just don't, as far as as far as being active, ninety nine percent of the stuff we just don't see or or, or ever. We just yep. don't see or hear. Sammy Aubrey's got that amazing TV show was on Access, I think, where there's some great episodes on there. He's got, of course, the whole Cabawabo that he's thing he was doing a lot of music during you know quarantine and all that stuff he's doing covers he's out there and i give a whole heartfelt envious applause for him to still keep kicking it out there can i can i add the like sammy usually does the one thing that makes you cringe like it's it's all great and then he steps over the line and what if i told you that this tour of sammy hagar in the circle with george thurgood and the destroyers was quote Presented by Sammy's Beach Bar Cocktail Company, Santo Tequila and Beach Bar Rum. All righty then. Of... So, in other words, he figured out a way to use marketing money for his company <laughs> yeah. to fund it more. Hey, I mean, he's getting paid by his own company. So uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a marketing guy. I applaud marketing and capitalism and the guy's a great entrepreneur question for you i have not looked at this yeah. but is uh michael anthony playing in the band he is playing in the I'm band with Nick so. johnson and jason bonham so jason bottom is doing the hagar tour and he's doing the kid rock tour with okay. Jason bottom led zeppelin experience got so it jason bottom is keeping pretty damn busy himself 
I love Jason Bomb. I love his drumming. I love it from, I still have an advanced cassette of the Bonham record from <laughs> 1989, maybe. I yeah. love him in Black Country Communion uh, yeah. with Glenn Hughes and Joe Bonamassa. Um, and I just uh, anything that guy's doing, I'm totally curious about because he is a monster drummer. Yeah, and he was in Foreigner as well. For That's true. He was in that really bad VH1 show called Supergroup. <laughs> Oh God! Let me guess. Hold on for those trivia folks out there. That was with Sebastian Bach, Sebastian Bach, Ted Nugent. Yeah. Right. Evan Seinfeld from Biohazard. That's right. Yeah. And, and Scott Ian, I think. And a bass player to be named later. Oh no, the Evan Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, I forgot he did play bass. That's right. I'm sorry. My bad. Yeah. So. It, it was funny to watch the dynamic of that show. Uh, that- that they had to come up with storylines that Sebastian Bach be basically became the son of Ted Nugent because Ted stepped up after Sebastian lost his dad. I have no idea what was going uh, on. It just, that's one of those ones where that should never have got made it out of the pitch meeting. No. It should never made it out of the brainstorming meeting. But so. uh, Jason Bonham was on that show, and he actually had to miss a couple of days of film to do the Foreigner touring back then. So. Jason Bonham has been working nonstop for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is. Yeah. So, well, let's see. I got to tell you something I found really cool very recently. Uh, and that is a uh, David Lee Roth concert. I had n- audio only that I had never found or it came up before on YouTube. And that is um, a David Lee Roth live radio show from the House of Blues in California recorded June 28th, 1994. And it was posted to YouTube back on December 20th of last year. And for whatever reason, my the algorithms put it in front of me a couple of days ago. And I got to tell you, man, I was blown away. First off, there are eight songs from your filthy little mouth. Eight. Okay. Eight. I'm yeah. sorry. Sorry, not sorry. No Big <laughs> Ting is not one of them. However, all my favorite songs, with the yeah. exception of Everybody's Got the Monkey, is on there. We're talking... Uh, we're talking She's My Machine, we're talking Big Train, uh, uh, A Little Luck, Hey You Never Know, and man, it is killer. Now, I was not sure, there's really no credits on there at all, there's no video, the only the only images on there are basically all Van Halen images, which right. whoever posted that kind of was like, <laughs> alright, dude, you know, however, it sounds really good, it was for a radio show, Dave keeps saying live, you know, live 97.1. He's got some pretty lengthy raps in there. Uh, some of them are a little bit too long, but it's they're pretty funny. He gives some good stuff. There's 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 your Van Halen stuff. There's Jump. There's um, there's Just Like Paradise. There's Just a Gigolo. There's a really killer, killer version of Beautiful Girls on there with Dave playing harmonica. And it is just, it goes to a breakdown where it's just like, holy shit. And there is a screaming version of your filthy little mouth, the title cut. Uh, Land's Edge is, Edge is on there. I think Nightlife. It is, I'm telling you, man, I was, you know, going to this with a bit of a grain of salt. I'm like, hey, this sounds pretty good. And I start getting the slider over because I'm like, all right, you know, I, the Van Halen stuff I've heard. Of, I, eight songs, I just died. And I'm like, all right, well, who's in this band? And I immediately went, Terry Kilgore. Yeah. Um, former DLR cast guest, uh, Ron Wixo on drums. And I can't remember the bass player. And of course, Brett Tuggle is on there. Jamie Hunting, yes, Brett Tuggle on. But um, I did not, it's not Terry Kilgore. It is another former DLR cast, 
guest, Rocket Rashad. And that is the first time I have ever heard his guitar playing with Dave. And he's killing it. He's yeah. got a big fat tone. He nails the Van Halen stuff, but adds his own stamp on it. Has I detected maybe a little bit of difficulty with the Vice stuff, but who wouldn't on just like Paradise or maybe who knows? It was late in the set, sweaty fingers, long set. I don't freaking know, but he sounded really cool. I wouldn't even say trouble. It just didn't. He didn't nail it as perfectly as maybe well i would but overall man if you're a dave fan and you're curious about that era era though find this show because the only stuff i ever saw from that era was like a pittsburgh club date with yeah. kilgore on guitar and this just comes across as a lot more aggressive the show and it's just it's a hell of a lot of fun find it it's good and, two thumbs and- up and on a on a less bright note, Terry Kilgore previously said he would speak to us for the show. And I got uh, I got a very long unproofread message from him on Facebook explaining why he's never going to waste his time talking about Dave Lee Roth ever. Really? And yes. Is this another scoop or is it just keep it under your hat? I'll, I'll tell you off mic. OK, man, that's too bad. It, it is. It is. I, I get where he's coming from. I, he feels a little burned by some of uh, our fellow Dave, Dave maniacs or whatever we call it, the Roth heads. Uh, I, I think there needs to be a proper name, but uh, I'll tell you who would speak with us. Uh, and that's Melissa Reiner. Yes. So <laughs> talk about a scoop, man. We are just killing it with the segues today, yes. but we want to get to this great interview because this is an amazing Roth, exclu- Roth exclusive that you found. Melissa Reiner is the violinist in Dave's band on the music for the, I guess the soundtrack of drum roll, please. No, <laughs> the no holds barbecue. Yes. I mean, talk about a fine man and talk about a killer interview considering this is, uh, you know, nearly 30 years ago or whatever. She's got a lot of great stories, a lot of great memories, and I'm, it, dude, it's just a fascinating interview. And who knew? I mean, the violinist. I mean, you're talking about ELO covers on there, and 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 well, talk about it. It's killer. We have this in two parts. This is part one. Yeah, it was a great, great interview, and I reached out to her. I tracked her down. A listener on our show said, oh, by the way, I heard you talking about uh, the No Holds Barbecue. The name of the violinist is this, and I went, that is her. And I reached out and she's kind of like, you know, I've done a lot. Do you really want to talk about raw? <laughs> like, you get you get that question a lot, don't you? <laughs> and uh, after, you know, she nicely said, yeah, I'll speak with you. She goes, yeah, so I rewatched No Holds Barbecue and I was trying to jog my memory on stuff and fortunately did that. And I, you know, we did a little prep where I said, I'm, I'm probably going to be asking about X, Y, and Z. And she has to be one of the most intelligent people I've ever interviewed. Uh, one of the most accomplished. Roth is really like at the lower echelon. Oh, she's got dozens. Uh, dozens. We'll put her email. Her email. Jesus, her website will be in the show notes. She's yeah. got a slew of credits and she's Frank Sinatra senior and still alive. Frank Sinatra jr. She, she worked with both of them. She part. Oh, there was a cough. We got one. All right. There we go. (laughs) She, she's the kind of artist that does soundtracks and Broadway, rather London West end and classical things and pop. 
And again, David Lee Roth's No Hold Barbecue is not one of her prouder moments, but she did have a lot to say about why it was a great learning experience for her and that she sort of was in touch with Dave after the fact as well. And she's in the video. She is in the video. Like I did, I, before I spoke with her, I was making note of like, okay, she's on this song. We hear her on this song. We see her, but we don't hear her on this song. She's throughout the video. Uh, rewatching the video on YouTube, unfortunately, created more Rothsteries than answers. Because <laughs> we're gonna have to take we're gonna have to take a very deep dive. Probably be split sp- spread over. We could serialize it, an offshoot. Uh, you know, seven episodes deep into the No Holds Barbecue. Well, uh, we do have a, an editor from it who may be willing to speak to us in the very near future. Awesome. Uh, he's he's mulling it over, but there's one or two blurred faces in it. Real, and one of them is hers. No, not hers. Oh, there's a, there's a guitarist in a scene that they made like a bus look like it, it has. PV amplifiers that they made to look like, I don't know, spaceships or something like that. So maybe the little people can come out of them. <laughs> and there's a blurred face guitarist that we see in another thing. And then there's another thing where a guy's playing harmonica and Dave's like, take it, Sam. I'm like, wait, who's Sam? Who? Yeah. So uh, we might have a seven episode <laughs> no old bar- barbecue coming now, up. Now refresh my memory again. And just for people out there, No Holds Barbecue was recorded approximately when? Melissa and I were trying to figure this one out. I got it, I believe, in 2000. So we think 99 and or 2000. Wow. Assuming it was all kind of done in one shot. I mean, it could have been done over a couple of years, perhaps. Who the hell knows? Yeah. I mean, some of those recordings like Baker Street still haven't come out. Yeah. So the Dave stories and the- and this came out after. Oh my God, dude, we're gonna end up. This is what <laughs> this came out after the DLR band album. Correct. I wonder if John Five is on any of that music. Great question. Has I, he ever been asked? I guess I have to interview him again, <laughs> or at least shoot him an email. <laughs> His email is public, but uh, oh damn it, Steve it. Uh, so much more work to do you know dave might never hit a concert stage again but the mysteries will continue and we'll cover them right here on the dlr cast oh we will we will well sorry to to cut this one short but this is a long part one here with part two to come very shortly from melissa reiner but hey thank you for listening thank you to steve for dealing with my crappy schedule and (laughs) coughing and all good uh, my friend (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm just excited. I mean, we've got two. I mean, we've got some s- some great interviews coming up. We've had some fantastic ones. I mean, for goodness sakes, name another podcast that has had the woman who trained Dave as an EMT. <laughs> we got that right here. I mean, seriously, it's the most in-depth look at Dave's time as an EMT you'll read or find or hear anywhere. Number one, David Lee Roth podcast in the world. I tell you. There we go. Subscribe. <laughs> hit that like button. Whatever. <laughs> Get after it. Yeah. And thanks for downloading and streaming. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Nothing but yeah. What was that? (laughs) Till the next time. You're intriguing because. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. I say that because it's not just your credits. 
it's not just the TED talk. It's not just that you're a novelist and your blog entries, you're a, as great a writer as you are a musician, oh. in my humble opinion. Thank you. So it's one Thank of those you. things where this person could do so many different things really well and is responsive with emails and communication. Usually okay. when you get those talents, you then like can't keep a calendar or something like that. So, right, right. <laughs> so before no, I... I uh, before Sorry, I like, go, go ahead. talk your ear off about all these weird David Lee Roth things that you experienced, but are positive about, what are you up to at the moment? Because you're very hard to pigeonhole. It's not just like, oh, well, she plays in West End Productions. Right. Yeah, no, I do. I do. I don't know. I feel a little bit like a creative jack of, jack of all trades, though, um, unfortunately, because I, I've always been interested in writing um, words, not music. I'm terrible at writing music. Not my not my thing at all. Um, so I just I've always loved reading. I've always really been into literature. I've always really been into British literature. So when I moved to London 10 years ago, it was kind of an opportunity to reinvent myself a little bit. You know, I never wanted to quit music. I love music. I still love music. I still mm -hmm. want to play but I wanted to see where writing could take me. And I felt like London is obviously one of the most amazing cities in the world It's mm -hmm. for, for literature, right? I mean, so many inspiring people have, have lived in, and written here and, 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 and been the subject of novels. And um, so, yeah, I started writing, I did a degree, I wrote a couple of novels um, and I almost got published by Penguin actually, but long story, it just, it didn't work out, um, which was disappointing. But I think like so many things in the arts that I'm sure you know from interviewing lots of people, you know, you never know what project is going to take off and right. you never know, um, you, you know, you never know what's going to hit. You never know who with money or agency contacts or whatever is going to want to make your project, whether it's a Timing book or film. on top of that. They, they already had a book about that. Therefore, we're not going to put out your book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, so then I had a child um, uh, about five and a half years ago, yeah. and that was after I'd written my second novel. And again, I, I gotten, I'd kind of gotten close and a lot of interest from agents, but just nobody had taken me on. And, um, and I thought, you know what, I can't, I can't write another novel right now. I don't have the bandwidth um, mentally after having yeah. a kid. So, but I've always loved movies and I play on so many film scores and I, I kind of had one of those like epiphanies, you know, where you sort of look at your life. And I thought, some of my favorite jobs that I've ever had have been um, on movie scores or doing things like the, the film with Dave, like being with amazing people, actors, musicians, performers, being with these great creative minds and making something that it's not about me, it's about something bigger than me. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a short film and I found some producers and we made the film. And so we're now, it's in festivals um, in, in, we're in a festival, I think in Vienna, Austria, and we just got into the Venice Shorts Festival in LA. Um, and some festivals here in England, Brighton Rocks. And um, yeah, it's it's really exciting. And I actually feel like filmmaking ticks all the boxes for me uh, emotionally um, and creatively because music is amazing. I mean, it's a kinetic art form. So it's performing and it's in the moment. Mm -hmm. And whether you're in the studio or on stage, you're you're really, um, you're, you're working with people and, and it's very collaborative, um, but it's not creative for me in the same way. And writing obviously is, intensely creative, but it's just me. And I'm just there by myself. And I, while I can do it, I'm used to practicing my violin. So sitting in a room reading, I mean, writing for eight hours a day is not a big deal, but it's also, I miss the collaboration that you have as a musician. So when I made my film, it felt like, well, I got to gather all these incredible people who all have their different talents, you know, between the, the actors and the costumers and the producers. And, um, and I brought everyone together and everyone gave what they could to the project. And I was kind of overseeing it like, 
Oh, I, I didn't think of myself as a director, more like a mad scientist. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and I really wanted it to be a super, um, a really truly democratic collaborative effort because we've all heard the horror stories about being on set or being in the studio or whatever with just like horrendously difficult auteurs. And I mean, obviously I'm not an auteur because I'm just sort of beginning as a filmmaker, but even if I was in the middle of my career, I think it's, I've read about famous people saying, let's have a no assholes on set policy. And I think, <laughs> I, you know, I think yeah. that's great. I think that's great. And, and I've, I've worked with so many musicians in to, to that, uh, that had that kind of have that aesthetic. I feel like actually Dave was someone that had that aesthetic. He didn't like say it out loud, but he definitely different, didn't suffer fools. You know, he's one of those kinds of people, like you have to be on your yeah. game. If you're on your game, he, I found him to be incredibly respectful and enthusiastic people that faltered. He could lose his temper a bit, but as long as you're on top of your game, it didn't matter. Okay. Um, so so yeah. that period of your career, and this is going to sound like such a sexist question, but mm -hmm. I'm going to, pre I'm prefacing that to yeah. show that I know what I'm talking about while I say this. So yes. the era around when you did the no holds barbecue thing, mm -hmm. the major labels were still like, well, this one thing was successful. We're going to sign a bunch of things like that. So in that mm -hmm. era, there was a lot of singer songwriter that, straddle between rock and classical, but was a violin player that was up front. There was Tracy Bonham, Lily yep. Hayden, Lisa Germano. Was there ever mm -hmm. almost a Melissa album of you out front as that, <laughs> is she a rock person? Is she a classical person? <laughs> Did that almost happen? No, actually. And you know what? It's funny, as I've, as I've aged and I got away from Hollywood and I continued my career in London, which is a very different vibe, you know? And I began also writing and now filmmaking, I realized something huge about myself. I am not a natural performer. Hmm. And I actually vastly prefer being behind the camera or being in the studio to create something where we can work on it. But performing is actually, it's only something I did because I was pretty good at the violin and I was a good musician and I loved working with amazing people. But I I'm not a natural performer. And if you, it's funny watching the video, rewatching this video, which I hadn't ever really properly seen since really? I saw it on you know, on VHS. I think I'd seen parts of it on the VHS. I can't remember. I mean, it's been a long time. You know, I think it was made yeah. 20 years ago. Um, and I was looking at myself and I was like, wow, I wonder if this gig would have been different for, for me or for just a different person who was much more like me, me, look at me. Like, it's just never been my thing to be like, I'm in the spotlight playing sexy, you know, well, like, well, you can't even do it. like, I, like I look like an idiot. Well, that was, Dave. first of all, you're right. You're right. That was Dave's job. Although since I was the only girl in the band, I probably could have gotten away with that. Um, but uh, yeah, but it, it's funny because the, I, I went on late, much later in um, 2008, I toured with the Jonas Brothers and mm -hmm. um, I, which was a great gig. They were really lovely guys, um, treated us very well. And I was actually in charge of hiring the rest of the strings for them. Obviously they had to approve, but it was wonderful because um, they wanted a double string quartet. So eight female string players. So four violins, two violas and two cellos. Um, and I got to steer my amazing friends that I wanted to work with that I also wanted to be on tour with for like four months. Because um, <laughs> that's a very, yes. that's a big distinction. The, the, I'm cutting you off there. The good hang principle. You're like, I, yeah. I don't care if you're the best player ever, but are you good and a good hang? Okay, you got yeah. the gig. A hundred percent. No, no, no. I mean, a thousand percent. People can't even underestimate how important that is. And major touring musicians know this. I mean, you know, there are a lot of rock band guys that might say, oh, well, I really like that drummer in the studio, but I wouldn't bring him on the road because yes. 
problematic in many ways, <laughs> um, or maybe just not fun. So, uh, but anyway, the point is, so the Jonas Brothers, like we had to do a lot of kind of like rocking out on stage. That was the gig. And I felt very awkward. Like I love to play and I managed to have fun because I was with a lot of girls that I felt comfortable with. And, and everybody, everybody on stage was great. Like the Jonas Brothers are amazing. Their whole backup band were wonderful guys, like really fun, but I feel awkward. And, and it's weird because I mean, how did I get into performing if I felt so awkward? I don't know. I, I mean, I think I just kind of fell into it. I, I felt a little bit like, like sort of Alice in Wonderland. Like I got to LA <laughs> and I fell down this rabbit hole because I can play the violin and I like playing the violin and, and I'm friendly and I'm pretty, I think, easygoing. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm quite confident when I speak to people, but I'm not that confident on stage. Hmm. And I sometimes wonder if I would have had a different career, maybe doing some kind of a Tracy Bonham kind of thing if I had, if that's what I had wanted, but you know, I never, I never wanted that. I never wanted to be front and center. Hmm. Well, if that, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I briefly managed Tracy and I love Tracy. She's wonderful. Oh, wow. And she Amazing. reinvented herself many times over. So kudos to Tracy, but this is not the yeah. Tracy Bonham podcast. This is, this is you, this is Melissa <laughs> time. And it, in anticipation of this, I actually rewatched the whole No Holds Barbecue video, which was yep. not the easiest and took <laughs> note. And I didn't remember how much you were in that video. Now, yeah. I'm not certain that it's you in every single part of it that I thought it could be you. And by that, I mean, there's a couple of scenes where there's people just dancing in the studio and mm -hmm. you can pick the drummer Ray out. You're like, OK, yeah. there's Ray. So there's musicians yeah. right there. Ray, yeah. Is that Melissa dancing? Is she dancing in the studio? Is she dancing in the hallway? Was that actually you besides the playing yeah. dancing in some of the scenes, too? Yes. And again, I was like, oh God, I'm not being hired for this. I don't look like a bunny, you know, um, but it's fine. Like I had a great time. Everyone, it was a really positive atmosphere on the set and Dave wanted everyone to participate. And some of those, like the hallway scene with like the super retro, like black and white yes. um, floor and everything. That's like, that's actually his house. Yes. Um, the pretty Mojo amazing. Dojo. Yeah. I mean, right. The Mojo Dojo, you know, but, um, uh, but so he wanted everybody. He wanted, like, I think he got a lot of people on set. Like when I looked back at it, I remembered, oh yeah, he roped a couple of the makeup people to just be in that scene for a bit because he wanted it to really fill out and look like a party. Um, and it, it was a party. I mean, it was a really kind of celebratory atmosphere on set. Um, I think people were really having a good time and no one knew what it was, what it was supposed to be or what it was all about. But I mean, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure Dave knew exactly what, except it was supposed to maybe represent a day in the life of David Lee Roth, a maybe slightly fantastical version of a day in the life. <laughs> so being chased by uh, Playboy Playmate triplets with mm -hmm. fake guns underwater is a day in the life. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, in his head, perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> so we, you know, we see you playing and there's so much visual stimuli that you mm -hmm. lose yourself and you stop thinking about what's going on. But I hear a cover of ELO where yep. violin is front and center and all that, and that's not a live performance. So that tells me that you also record stuff in the studio besides what we see that's live on there. Yeah, it's it's actually, it's great that you sent me some questions about, yeah, you know, where are we in the studio, blah, 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 ahead of time, because I had completely forgotten once you said that, it triggered this memory of being in a studio with Dave and recording the ELO specifically because I think 
I felt the most comfortable about doing um, that song because all I had to do was transcribe. There was a very simple, well, not simple, because it was actually kind of fiddly, but a very specific violin part in the original ELO recording. Mm -hmm. And all I had to do was transcribe it and play it and play it perfectly and play over myself seven times. But I can do that. I'm a, you know, I'm a trained classical musician. I'm used to being in the studio. Mm -hmm. What I'm not used to is improvisation and when I first, so, oh, well, I can tell you in a minute, but yeah, to go back to the ELO, yes, absolutely. There's an ELO cover. And that was really fun for me because again, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. There's a violin part and I can play it. A lot of the other stuff, it was more just come up with this part, just improv on the fly. And that's not what I was trained to do. Whereas all the other guys were absolute experts at it. That's what they were doing. They were rock, jazz, country, all kinds of, you know, they, I think they all had really pretty different backgrounds, but it was basically all can we make up something on the fly because we're amazing improvisers? Yes, we can. That's not me. And, um, and it's actually incredible that Dave didn't fire me on the first day. And I, I, I can tell you kind of a funny story about that. If you want to, you want to hear yeah, that. Yeah, please. I'm very curious about that. That I was actually going to lead towards that because some mm -hmm. of the songs you go, that is a song or that is a standard. There was a song called when it's love time that I didn't know that I'm assuming is a standard and then there's another one or two where i'm listening like it sounds like this is a one four five kind of structure and you can really hear that toshi is strumming away and then yes. you think so melissa has to figure out what it is that she's playing there i could tell that there was improv going on and it, it did sound natural but please tell me the story of how you almost got fired <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, it's good it sounded natural because I never felt natural. I still don't feel natural. I mean, it led to me doing a lot more improv for other things. I don't know if that specifically did, but I obviously felt more comfortable, but it's still not something that I'm strong at. You know, I'm much better at like, you give me a piece of music, I will sight read it. It doesn't matter what it is, I will do right. it. And I will do it to a pretty decent level, you know? But um, yeah, so basically the reason I think, yeah, the, just the very first day. So I got called... Um, I got called to do the gig and I can't remember how much notice I got, but it was a friend of mine who was also a violinist who did, he did more kind of like studio music, more, um, he played more with uh, like composers, like for film scores and TV. He probably did less of the rock band stuff. Um, but he, for some reason, I don't know, someone found him and asked him to recommend someone. So he recommended me, which was extremely kind. And I think I remember asking him like, is there going to be any music? Like, what do, what do I do? And I think he said, well, I, I don't know, just, just go there and wing it. And I don't remember that they, um, sent me anything advanced. They may have sent me some tracks to listen to, but they might not. I, I feel like I just showed up. And I also think, but again, like this is a very hazy memory. I may have been hired as kind of a last minute addition because I know when I arrived, the band had already rehearsed at least one day without me. So I don't know if that's because they just want to lay down the tracks without the violin or if it's because I was kind of a last minute hire. I, I don't honestly remember. But what I do remember is that I showed up to the gig and I get there and I'm like, so is there any music? You know, give me the, the sheet music. And the the, lead, the the music director, Bart, I don't remember his last name. I just Bart remember Walsh. his name. Bart. Yeah, we, he, right. he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. To, oh, gosh, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Oh, I had no idea. But oh, I gosh. had no idea that he was the music director. So you just provided some insight right there. Thank you. Uh, well, I think he was. I mean, no. I mean, God, now I don't, don't quote me on it. Um, maybe you should ask one of the other guys, but it, to my knowledge, he was the music director. I mean, I felt like I was, he was the one that I had to kind of turn to when I needed like advice, like, oh, you know, what, what am I supposed to do here? Cause he's the, he was like the lead guitarist, right? Or was he yes. the rhythm guitar? Lead. The, okay. the Toshi, rhythm guitarist was Toshi Hikeda Toshi. and then yes. uh, Bart was the lead. Yes. Right. Okay. So I think he was kind of, maybe he was the unofficial music director. Obviously Dave was the music director. I mean, no yeah. question about that, but I feel like when I needed, questions answered musically, I had to turn to Bart. Um, but I remember, so I was like, so is there any music? And Bart was like, 
no, we don't need music. And I mean, I think, I think some, some of those guys maybe didn't even really use music. It just wasn't something they did. And I said, well, do you have a chart, you know, knowing the tiny bit that I did about like sort of jazz and, and, you know, non-classical stuff. And he said, I've got a Bart chart. chart. And I'll never forget. I was like, that was the moment I was like, oh, I'm in over my head. I, what am I going to do? Cause I, I'm not a great improviser. So he hands me this chart and it's like scribbled out, like, you know, C7 diminished and, you know, all these chords. And I barely got through music theory at my, in my conservatory. You know, I, I studied classical violin for four years at the Peabody conservatory. I, I really yeah. know what I'm doing with classical music, music, and I can play anything sort of violinistic, but I was, I don't know much about theory. I barely made it through. I, you know, I, I, I missed half my theory classes because I was, I don't know, doing something more fun probably. Um, so yeah, I was, I was a little, it's just, so just showing me the chords, I can intellectually understand what that means, but I can't look at a certain chord and immediately know what all the notes are in it. Um, and, and here's an interesting thing about me musically is that I am able to actually sing harmonies much better than I am to figure it out with the violin. There's some kind of weird disconnect with my brain because I studied the violin so seriously mm-hmm. and I never studied singing. So it's like, I can be free and I can just find the note and I'm not thinking about what is the note. You, do, does that make sense? Yes. I'm some, able to, yeah. Some people who, you know, this is not a direct parallel, but some mm-hmm. people who don't play an instrument can hear music in their head. Some mm-hmm. people who can't sing can do harmonies. So mm-hmm. there's no yeah. linear way to how people learn theory or harmony. Yes, yes. That, yeah, I guess that's a good way of doing it. But for some reason, I feel much more free. I could harmonize to anything with because I'm just, you know, because I am a good musician. But in terms of like harmonizing with the violin, I can do it, obviously. And I've gotten much better at it since that first day with David Lee Roth. But that was probably my first gig I think I'd ever been asked to improvise. And my God. So anyway, the reason he did not fire me is so I get there to the rehearsal and I'm, I'm looking at the Bart chart and I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm fucked, basically. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Like, I'm just going to have to like play under and just be really nice and smiley and really, really receptive and kind. And, you know, which I am. Any, I'm not going to be a diva because it's not about me. Mm-hmm. But I thought well, I'm going to have to really play this like delicately. Right. Um, but the rehearsal is just about to start. And then Dave gets a call on his phone from his security guard at the front gate. And the guy says, oh, the keyboards player is here. But it was past time for the rehearsal to start. And Dave was like, let him come in here and get his stuff. He's fired. He's done. You know, I don't, I don't take lateness. And I remember thinking, oh God, harsh. On the other hand, fair enough, right? He's a professional. You don't, you know, you cannot be late to professional gigs. You know, like we're all professional musicians. This is Dave's time. He paid everyone very well. I can't remember what I was being paid, but I was, I think, it was, I think he was like sort of paying weekly or daily. I can't remember, but it was a very, very good rate. And, you know, like, just don't be late. Like it's LA. Yes. And the guy I remember. So the guy comes in, he's all sweating and sheepish and like kind of pleading for his job. And Dave's like, I'm sorry. No, he just, he wouldn't even really let the guys, he let the guy speak, but he was like, sorry, I'm not changing my mind. This is not professional. You can, you know, good luck. Like I let this be a lesson to you for future gigs. Um, you know, I don't remember the words he used, but he definitely, he wasn't, um, he wasn't mean, but it was definitely harsh. You know what I mean? He was just like, he was, he was, the, he was a truth teller. He was like, this isn't cool. This isn't going to fly. And I'm yeah. not going to put up with this. He's also setting an example for the rest of the sessions of you guys are on Dave time. Yes. Be here. Yeah, exactly. And fair enough. You know, I, I like, I have, I have no problem with that, but it also, I think honestly, that keyboard player may have been the reason that I wasn't fired. I mean, it was more, I think also to give me a little credit. So at the end of the rehearsal, like I definitely kind of mm, played out on trying to play under. And a couple of times Dave was like, let's hear the violin on that. I was like, okay. And I would just kind of play something. And 
I'm sure some of it was better than I remember. I'm sure some of it was just as bad as I remember. So it was probably a mixed bag. So at the end of the rehearsal, Dave says to me, look, I can tell that um, this isn't what you're used to doing. And, you know, you could you could do better. You could this this could be better. But that I can tell that you're a really great musician. You have a beautiful sound as a violinist. And um, just let's just get you prepared. Let's just get you, you know, let's get you fired up and ready to play this game. Basically, he's like, talk to Bart, whatever you need to get, get going for this. We'll get it to you. You need charts. You need music. We'll get it for you. And, but I so I think that it was partly a combination that the key he had maybe already fired one person that day. He didn't want to do it. Also, I was really young. I, I, I was in my, I think, mid, mid 20s, maybe early 20s at the time. And I was the only girl and I was the youngest person. And I think he just, he was being nice. He decided to like, rather than just like throw me out and find a new violinist, which also maybe he thought, oh, how difficult, like to find a new keyboard player, not so difficult to find a violinist that, that kind of kind of looks the part as well. That's a little bit more difficult. Hmm. Um, but I think, so I think the keyboard kind of player kind of saved me. David already fired one person. And, and ultimately I think he, I think he recognized my musicianship. I mean, Dave is a really great musician himself. And I think he could just tell, like, I didn't know what I was doing, but that I could learn. Hmm. There is so much to process right there. But one thing I can't figure out for watching this whole thing is everything that Dave does is very deliberate. Mm. But um, mm-hmm. I, I had like a, a questionable conversation with somebody who trained him as an EMT. Oh, right. And her name is Linda. She was in his EMT teacher. And right. she was talking about how hard he worked, how he always did his homework, how he always wanted to do everything the best. But the David Lee Roth on-screen persona is kind of like a slacker. It's kind of like, I'm one of you. I'm, I screw up all the time. And then he yeah. does the most impressive thing you've ever seen. Yes, yes. So throughout this video, you know, he keeps telling you, this is Diamond David Lee Roth, and mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm talking about, but neither do you. Like, yeah. he keeps yeah. doing that kind of a thing. And you go, was this a one-take thing? And he leaves in the mistakes? Or does he want the mistakes to be seen? So I couldn't tell if the band did everything 10 times or it's just like, did we get it? Okay, done. Next. You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I want to say one thing about Dave is I think he's extraordinarily intelligent. I mean, he starts oh, speaking yeah. some you know, I mean, obviously, you know that, you know that, you know, you've yeah. been, you're, you're, yeah. So I don't, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but um, I mean, not everybody who reaches the level as a musician that he, that, like him, is as smart as Dave. Like, what he's doesn't he speak Japanese at some point? And he definitely speaks some Spanish in the video. Like Spanish, you know, like Portuguese. Right. Uh, he shows yeah. he can play guitar. He shows he can play steel drum. Yeah. There's there's a couple the ninja. of ninja show elements. I, ninja I always stuff. I always thought, and you could tell me if I'm totally off base with this. I thought he hires the best teacher in the world to teach him how to do seven minutes of something that looks impressive. And if you went. Okay, now play an A minor seven on the guitar. He might go, oh, oh, they didn't show me that one. It's just like he learns the seven minutes to impress you, and then he takes the next talent, almost like bar tricks. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he has a pretty good ear. I can tell you from being in the uh, uh, studio with him when we did that ELO. Like, I specifically remember the ELO, maybe because it was just like me, Dave, and the. Yeah, I, I think we would have recorded the violin part like nobody else would have been needed to be there just for the violin. So that's why mm-hmm. I remember because it's me and Dave and he has an amazing ear. So, no, I don't 
No, I think he's a pretty good musician. I, I was I was pretty impressed. I think you're right. I think the whole shtick of like, oh, I'm just like you. I think that's a bit of a persona. And um, in terms of being an EMT, obviously I can't speak to that because I wasn't there, but I feel like he's the kind of guy that does things really well when he puts his mind to it. And whether it's seven minutes of tricks or whether it's like, <laughs> you know, 70 minutes, like I think he's pretty good at a few things. And so I think when he, maybe when he trained to be an EMT, he probably wanted to master that. You know, he wanted to, he wanted, and also maybe he, there was an element of proving himself. Like he's been a rock star his whole life. Now he can do something with the scientific basis, perhaps, you know. Right. That makes sense. So do you remember if things were like generally one take or multiple takes? It's a very good question. Um, I feel like there were multiple takes, but I don't remember it being onerous. So I think it was more like, I think the camera was just rolling and they would put us in, like, for example, there's that one scene where like all of us are in the hot tub. Yes. <laughs> the whole band is like in that random, like giant hot tub thing. I think we're just like, we're all there and we're playing and, or we're pretending to play because obviously some of it was recorded with sound and a lot of it was just like, it was just the studio, you know? So um, I think it was just camera rolling, to be honest with you. I don't know how many really takes there were. I'm sure some of the more elaborate setups, there must've been multiple takes like the stuff in the swimming pool that obviously we were not involved in. But I feel like for us, most of our stuff, we were just set up and it was just, yeah, lots of different angles and rolling and just like having a good time. And then the editor would go through and pick out like, you know, what, what shots look amazing. I know from, you know, working on editing my own film, I didn't edit it myself. I had had an editor, but um, like, yeah, you just, you just find the gold. And sometimes the gold is not what you planned it to be. It's like, oh my God, that shot is incredible. How did we get the bunny leaning into Dave <laughs> with Dave making the crazy face and the, um, the short man? I can't remember the right terminology and I don't want to say anything offensive. We say little person and I think that's acceptable vernacular. Yes. Okay. Okay, thank you. Because it didn't used to be a thing, but obviously, like, I do not want to say anything. There's not a lot of political correctness in this video anyway. I'm no, oh my God. But it's, it's really interesting because when I look back on it, I thought, you know, I wasn't bothered by any of this at the time. And to maybe, maybe I don't sound like a feminist because I am definitely a feminist, but I don't remember. I mean, I, looking back even, I feel like it was the era and I think the reason it didn't feel problematic to me at the time was because it felt actually very respectful and, and fun. It felt like there was a lot of kind of just gratuitous silliness and a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's definitely a really sexist take for a lot of the women. Um, however, as I said, it was a different era. And I think that it, it felt fun. Now, I don't know because I wasn't hired as a commodity in the same way that the other women were hired. They were oh, hired... Right for their bodies, for their looks, for their appearance. So that was their commodity. Um, and some of them had more of a profile too, like as in, in the bunny world, you know? Um, but I was hired to be a musician and I think they probably wanted a female musician, a female violinist because a lot of people like the idea of a female violinist that feels more sexy, you know, in the context of a rock band. And that's fine, I'm, I'm happy to go with that. But if you kind of look at the clothes they put me in versus what they put the bunnies in, I was definitely in still sexy stuff, but it was not sexualized. It was not anything remotely slutty. It was more like kind of tough, like streetwear, you know, yeah. like tank tops and like cargo pants, but like crop tops. You know, so like still sexy, but more like um, like early No Doubt. Like I remember actually yeah. seeing No Doubt in Paris in 1997. And Gwen Stefani was very much like kind of tough street style. Like she was super beautiful and sexy, but she was wearing like crop tops and cargo pants and like big boots, you know, like she wasn't wearing like little tiny dresses. 
Um, and, and obviously her style evolved too, but I, and maybe it was also just a function of like, what it was at 2001, I think when we shot it. So, um, obviously costume designers are good. Was it 2001? There's mystery around that as well. I know it had to have been between 2000 and 2002. I'm thinking that it was 2000 because I remember Mm. coming home as a high school senior and the, the UPS driver getting off the truck and going here. And it was two copies of the VHS. So I was in high school when it happened. So I'm pretty sure it was 2000. So. Okay. That sounds, that sounds about right. Actually, in terms of how old I was and how old I looked in the video and, and in terms of what else I had done, like at that point, I definitely had worked with some other big stars, but it was all in a very different context. It was like being one of a string section to play with like Brian McKnight or like NSYNC, for example, you know, that kind of thing. Um, There was a real kind of early aughts, like end of the end of the 20th century, early aughts, like boy band revolution. And they all wanted like cute female string players with them. But it was, I was always part of a section and it was just, yeah, it was just a completely different vibe. So when I went on set, um, to start working with Dave for the first rehearsal, the one that I could have gotten fired from, um, I was pretty confident going in because I'd already done some other work with pretty big artists, but I just had no idea what I was getting into with no no music, <laughs> with Bart charts. Bart charts. <laughs> well, being super mindful of your time. The oh, no, no, last... don't worry. Don't worry. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, yeah. If you have more questions, I could actually, actually have a couple more um, Dave stories if, if you want to hear them. Um, I, I absolutely do. But the the thing that I was going to ask was if you had worked with anybody from that shoot again, because it seems like inevitably you would have run into Ray, the drummer on a session gig. He, he was always working everything. And he's now been yes. in corn, I think for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. We're still Facebook friends actually. Well, you know, um, all of those guys, it all happened before social media and Facebook and all that was really around. So um, I stayed in touch with Ray because probably he was the other person that was closest to my age out of all the guys in the band. And he was so, I mean, they were all really nice. Honestly, everybody on the gig was so nice, so respectful, including Dave himself. It was really like really made me feel very welcome because they were obviously a band. Like they'd all been working together for a while. And I was just like coming in. I was the only girl. I was, the, I was a violinist. Like I was the odd man out in every way. And everybody really well, made me feel welcome. Uh, to cut you off there, there's also a harmonica player and a couple songs who I didn't figure out who he was. Yes, I forgot. So, I so you are the only blurred. oddity outside person. And then there's a person whose face is blurred in two or three scenes who I couldn't yes. figure out who that was. Me too. I was like, who did they blur out? Because is it Bart or no, he was definitely in the video, right? I don't know if that was Terry Kilgore. Do you know if Terry was around the set by any chance? Um, what does he play? He's a guitarist who grew up with Dave, who was in and out of Dave's band like three or four times. Interesting. I I don't honestly, I don't remember if you showed me a picture of him, I might remember him, but um, I only remember like Toshi and James and Ray and Bart, mm-hmm. like just because I, I think I just spent the most time with them. Like the key, the harmonica player had totally forgotten about him until I saw him in the video. He, and then I was like, he calls oh, yeah. him Sam at one point, but I don't know if it's like um, uh, Frank <laughs> yeah. Sinatra, who you, you, your credits include Frank Jr. And then posthumously, you worked with Frank Sr. Yeah, posthumous. Yeah, I'm not that Uh, old, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) But there's stories of like Frank Sinatra Sr. like towards the later years, like they didn't always get him the names of the musicians on stage. So it's like Cookie McRoberts. I I didn't know if Dave like just calls everyone Sam or the harmonica player was Sam. um, You know what? It could be that Dave was having fun 
so no, Dave, I mean, Dave knew everyone's name. I felt like he definitely yeah. like, no, a Dave was really on the ball. I have to say, like, I was yeah. really impressed by him. I mean, for all his kind of loosey goosey stuff in the video, I mean, I think he really knew what he wanted. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I think the loosey goosey was what he wanted, but no, he, no, he knew, I, I, he knew what was going on. Like he was very much it, in control. I mean, I think it, he essentially directed it. Like it's his vision. Yes. It's you know, the so opposite of Jeff Lynn who go, and I love Jeff Lynn and ELO, but he mm -hmm. goes, we have great musicians on stage. I'm going to have the music director tell you who they all are. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, the yeah, opposite no. of that. Dave yeah. knew what was going on. No, no, absolutely. He did. So I cannot remember the harmonica player, but I feel like if Dave called him Sam, it was just like to have fun, just the way he's like pretending to paint a Picasso when one of the girls is like naked, you know, I mean, <laughs> wherever it comes from in his brain is, um, is a pretty, it's a pretty special rabbit hole. And um, I definitely felt like I fell down into the rabbit hole by joining the whole video. Um, but, uh, oh yeah, I wanted to tell you, actually, this is, this is, this is kind of skipping ahead, but this is a really good Dave story of long after the fact. Oh, so you asked if I work with anybody again. Um, I feel like I ran into the bass player, James, at some point on the set of some music, uh, like maybe another, uh, some kind of like a movie or a TV show, or maybe even a video, but something where an orchestra was needed. I feel like he was there and we kind of were like, oh, hey, hi. But like, that was it. And it, I mean, I was in Mr. and Mrs. Smith on set and he might've been one of the bass players for that. I really don't remember. I'm sorry. I just, I do vaguely remember running into him maybe once, but I couldn't tell you what project it was. Um, but I do, I, Ray and I kept in touch because um, he was just super nice. And he was like, hey, yeah. I play in this. I, I, he was so friendly. Like, I, it's, it's also funny looking back. I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little bit. Um, don't but be sorry. You're so okay. generous with your time and the information you're giving me. Thank you. No, no, I'm, I'm happy to help. Like, it's really actually fun to revisit this because I feel like in many ways, this gig actually got me started just mentally. It didn't actually lead to anything else really for me, but um, it kind of got me on a path of just thinking of myself in a different way, you know? Um, but although it did lead to some other stuff, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute, but um, yeah, I was going to say, looking back on the whole video and then thinking back on the whole, like the now the Me Too era, I feel very lucky as a female musician in a lot of situations that I was treated very well. It's actually, it's almost weird that I look back and I think, wow, all these stars were nice to me and all these people behind the scenes were nice to me. And then, cause you hear horror stories about people, sometimes even people that I have worked with and I hearing something after the fact, right. but I didn't see anything like that with Dave and I never experienced anything. And I honestly felt like all the guys in the band were the opposite of sleazy. They were just really welcoming. And like afterwards, Ray was just like, Hey, you know, I, I play in this random band. You should bring your friends to come see you sometime. And it was um, metal shop. Oh, yes, which became it, Steel Panther ultimately. Yes, which became Steel Panther. But so I, I mean, it, it was really fun. Like it was so kind of Ray. He would like put me, he'd be like, hey, I'm doing this show on whatever night at the Viper Room. And I'd be like, great, I'd love to come down. Like, why not? LA, I felt like LA was a really magical place to be a young musician because the more people you met, you know, you would just end up going to parties and you'd go to shows and you'd go to backstage and you, you know, it felt like something crazy could always happen around the next corner. You know, you could always, you could often just like end up in some random mansion, God knows who or why or where. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a fun thing to do. So of course, so Ray's like, Hey, I play with metal shop. And so some of my girlfriends and I would often just go and, and, and just support him and like hang out a bit. And he's, he's a, yeah, he's a good guy. And I was really, I was really happy for him when he got corn. I mean, it's a really great gig. And, and I think he played with Dave for years, didn't he? 